when I went through one of my favorite passages in the book of First uh, Peter, chapter 2, we'll be looking at. And this um, was a sermon I had actually preached in, in Africa a number of years ago. And um, today we'll try to stick to English. Um, and my notes from then are probably of minimal value today. Um, but anyway, um, although the book of First John is probably my favorite book, this passage in First Peter is probably one of my favorite passages. So if you would turn with me to First uh, Peter chapter 2, um, and we're going to be looking at verses, primarily verses 4 through 10, um, but I would like to read beginning in verse 1 to sort of set the context, but we will then dissect uh, verses 4 through 10. First Peter chapter 2. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, this stone which the builders rejected, this very stone became the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were not for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's open in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that as you help us to look at as we look at your word briefly here, that you would speak to us, that you'd use the words that I have to say to minister to each one of us, and may we hear from you today. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. <clears throat> This passage here, uh, Peter really is talking about the um, the Christian's identity, and he's going to identify the Christian's identity with a stone. Okay, and we're gonna we're gonna look at that. But briefly, in the first two first three verses, he he reminds them of where they've been. If you if you're familiar with the book of First Peter, the big focus of First Peter chapter one was that their new birth. And the salvation that came as a result of it. And so he reminds them of what should characterize their life and what should not characterize their life. So he talks in verses 1, their old way of life. And there was a bunch of characteristics that Peter says, now that you have been born again. He said that in chapter 2, verse 23, chapter 1, verse 23. He says, these characteristics should no longer be part of your life. Okay? And he lists a bunch of vices there. And these are not the bigger ones that we're used to. These are mostly ones that are community-destroying devices. And if you're familiar with the book of First Peter, he's getting ready to tell them they're going to be going through a lot of persecution. And the last thing they need is a bunch of uh, dissension within the church. Because that's not going to help their cause as they're getting ready to suffer greatly. And so the, the list of vices that he says, they should get rid of these. Okay? And what's interesting... In contrast, you would think, he said, okay, put off this stuff and 
He doesn't say, well, but, but you should put on these things. He simply directs their focus to the Word of God. Okay? And he says, like newborn babies, they should have a longing for the pure milk of the Word. So he's saying to replace that old way of life with the new way of life is simply a hunger and a longing for God's Word. Okay? In other words, he's saying, hanging on, for, hanging on to old sins and a desire for God's Word, they just don't mix. They just don't mix. Okay, Um, and so he encourages them to have a longing for the pure milk of the word. Uh, Job, I love what Job says in Job 23, 12. He says, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And that's kind of what Peter is saying for them. Um, And so he says then that this milk, this this word of God, he, he uses the analogy of milk which is nourishment. And then the idea he has this word in there, pure milk. The idea that it's not watered down. Okay? So really he's talking about steak and potatoes here. Okay? And he says that this word, interesting, back in verse 23 of the last chapter, he said it was the living word of God that brought them salvation in the first place. And here he's saying it's the word of God that brings about the spiritual growth in their life. And, the, and he says is that as a result of this word, you're going to grow in respect to salvation. For Peter, salvation is a process. In fact, he said in chapter 1, verse 3, verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. Paul would say, now you are closer to your salvation than when you first began. And so to Paul, to Peter, excuse me, um, life is a process of growing your salvation and is ultimately not completed until we see Christ face to face. And he said this, it should result, this desire for God's word should come from the fact that you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord. Paul challenged the church in Rome, in, chap- in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he says, not to think lightly of the kindness of God, because it is the kindness of God that draws one to salvation. And so Peter says the much the same thing, that is the kindness of the Lord that should be what draws them into the word of God, and they should have a longing for milk, much like Newborn babies have a longing for milk. Um, I remember the last time I, when I was preaching this and in Africa, there was a, a young lady uh, in the front row, and um, she was um, using the milk to entice her child to be still, and it worked. Um, it really did, but it was kind of uh, disturbing as I was trying to preach. Um, so I, I do have that imagery in my mind. I'm not going any farther there, but... It, um, so we don't have that distraction today, but um, but I did have a great analogy that I was able to use right there, and I and it used I used it to my advantage. But anyway, um, then we come to the passage that we want to look at here, uh, verses four through ten, and and um, Peter here is going to quote a lot from the Old Testament because the picture of Christ or God in the Old Testament as the rock was extremely common throughout the Old Testament. He's referred to as the rock, and as such, he was the foundation and the source of one's strength. And he's going to talk about the Christian's identity as being identified with this stone. Um, I love what Sam, what the author, what the writer of the first Sam, Second Samuel said in Second Samuel chapter 22, verses 32 and 33 says, For who is God besides the Lord? And who is a rock besides our God? God is my strong fortress. And he sets the... And he sets the blameless in his way. The idea is that this rock is an anchor. It's a strong foundation. 
Okay, And God was regularly referred to as the rock. Moses talks about it in Deuteronomy as well as in Exodus and many other places, the analogy. In this place, in this passage, Peter quotes from two passages in Scripture, and it's worthwhile that we read them. So if you turn with me to Isaiah 28, um, verses 26. And he says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disappointed. And then he also quotes from Psalms 118, verse 22. He says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And the idea is that Peter's going to take that which was referred to God the Father, and he's going to be talking here about Christ is that stone to us. Okay? Um, but Peter probably has more of what Isaiah wrote, if you would turn to me. The picture that he has in, uh, is in Isaiah chapter... He doesn't directly quote from this passage, but he probably has this concept more in mind. In mind, Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. And let me read beginning in verse 13. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and, you shall, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike, and a rock to stumble over, and a snare, and a trap for the inheritance of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them, and they will fall and be broken. Even, they will even be snared and caught. And Peter is painting a picture here that life is like a, is a path. And everybody has to travel down this path. And in this path, there's a rock. And everybody has to deal with this rock. To some, it becomes a sanctuary. And to others, it becomes a rock they stumble over. And that is the picture that Peter is painting here. And he presents that in this path of life, there is to only two options to deal with this stone. And everybody at some point or another, in some way or another, deals with this stone. And it's much like the prophet Isaiah said, it's either going to become a sanctuary or it's going to be a rock that you stumble over. Let's look at what Peter says here. Option number one, to begin with, is to reject the stone. And he says, this stone is laid there. You have no choice to, but to deal with it. And the, the term rejected implies that they examined it. They took a look at it, and then they cast it aside as a reject. And that's exactly what the Jewish leaders did, right? Jesus did not fit their preconceived notion of what a Messiah should be like. Okay? And so they rejected him. Okay? Many today reject Christ for the exact same reason. Jesus doesn't fit their idea of what he should be like. Others reject the stone because they think believing in Jesus is too narrow-minded. They're going to cramp their lifestyle. Sadly, many today reject the stone without even really so much as a glance. Okay? But everybody has to deal with the stone, and option number one is to reject the stone. However, Peter says, when you take that option, this stone will prove to be offensive to you. We see that today. Christ is very offensive to people. It seems like it's becoming even more and more offensive. And those who identify with Christ find themselves that they are offensive. Okay? And Peter goes on to say, not only will this rock become offensive to those who reject it, but it will also ultimately prove to be their destruction. Notice he says, and he, in verse 7, the stone which the builders rejected, this stone became the very cornerstone and a stone of a stumbling and a rock of offense for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. 
Um, <clears throat> so t- to reject the stone is an option, but you will find that the stone, you will stumble over it. It will ultimately prove to be your doom. Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 3, verse 36. He basically laid out these exact same two options. John chapter 3, verse 36, he says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. The one who does not obey or the one who disbelieves the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So option one is not Peter's suggestion, but it is one of the options. But it will be proved that you will stumble over and you will find that Christ will be offensive. And you will be, ultimately it will prove to be your doom. The other option is to believe, he says. And to those who believe, Peter is going to say that it will ultimately demonstrate it. And we'll see this as we dissect this text here. It will be demonstrated by their life. Okay? But for those who believe and respond in obedience, they will find that the stone will become an anchor to which they can hang their life on. And he says, you will not be disappointed. Notice what he says at the end of verse 36. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. In other words, you can trust that stone. You can stake your entire life on this stone and you will not be disappointed. And Peter actually, to make his point, uses a double negative here. He really translates never ever. Is, is the little translation. Isaiah spoke of the same kind of confidence in regards to God and his care for the st- and his and his relationship to the stone. He says in Isaiah 54:10, "For the mountains may re- may be removed, and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken," says the Lord, who has compa- compassion on you. Um, Paul said the same thing in Romans chapter 8. He said there's nothing, nothing that he could think of, height or depth, width or breadth or anything that can remove the love of God from you. And he has that kind of confidence. This is an anchor. Those who believe this, this stone becomes an anchor that you can depend on. But beyond that, he says, not only will it be something that you will not be disappointed in. I love the song that we sang today. Um, but this stone becomes very precious. This stone should become very precious to you. Earlier, Peter had told them in chapter 1 that it was through the precious blood, verse 19. We sang that song today. And in fact, Peter is saying that alone should be enough, that this stone should become very precious to you. Okay? In other words, as I come to this stone, this, I should find that Jesus, you should find that Jesus is becoming more and more precious to you. However, Peter says, this stone is already precious because God so declared it to be. Notice what he said in chapter, in verse 5. You also as living... No, I meant to, verse 4. As to the living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. This stone should become precious to you and me. But this stone is already precious, not because we make it precious, because God so declared it to be. Okay? And so, the significance of the stone is it divides everybody in the world into two groups. And there is only two camps. Those who believe and those who disbelieve. And those who believe, the stone becomes very pressure. And it's an anchor that you can, that you can stake your life on. To those who disbelieve, it will ultimately end up something they stumble over. And it will end up being their doom. There's many significances of this stone. Peter lists two here that we want to look at. And in fact, 
Peter takes a lot of the significance of the stone in the Old Testament was probably primarily mentioned more towards God, and he applies it here to Christ. In fact, Jesus himself quotes this very same passage in Mark chapter 10, verse 12. This idea of him becoming the cornerstone and applies it actually to himself. Okay, But Peter's two points that he makes here, or two significances of this stone. First, this stone is living, and as a result of being living, it is life-giving. Notice how he refers to this stone in chapter, in verse 4. He says, and coming to him as to a living stone. You'll find if you read First Peter, the word living is one of his favorite terms. And the idea is that living means it's dynamic, it's alive, it's life-giving, and it's growing. We do not come to Christ as a stagnant relationship. Your relationship with Christ should be one that's living and growing. In chapter 1, he told us we don't have just a hope, we have a living hope. In chapter 1, he also told us we don't just read the Word, we have the living Word. Here he said, and that's verse 23, here we not only come to the stone, but it's a living stone. You don't normally think of rocks as living, okay? But the stone that Peter has in mind is one that is living. Um, if you think about some of the teachings of Jesus, you go through the Gospel of John, you'll find Jesus talk often about this. He came to the woman at the well, and what did he offer her? Living water, not just water. And if you drink of that water, you'll never get thirsty again. He claimed to be the bread of life. Okay, Jim read that passage today. And those who eat of him will never hunger and never thirst. He claimed that he was the good shepherd, and the good shepherd came to do what? To give life to its fullest, John 10, 11. Later on in John 11, he, he claimed, he went so far as to say he is the resurrection and the life. Okay? And the idea is not only does he give life, but he is life. And so Peter's point here is that this stone is living. It is life-giving. And my walk with Christ should be alive, dynamic, and growing rather than dead and stagnant because he is the source of life. The second significant point that Peter pulls out here is that this stone is the cornerstone. He says it's the chief cornerstone. Now, this passage is quoted many places in the Bible. However, the, this particular word that Peter chooses to use here, and I'm not going to try to pronounce that Greek word, um, but it's only used twice in the New Testament. Here and in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Every every time this passage is quoted, it's a different Greek word that is used. And this particular Greek word has two possible meanings. I went to um, Loanida, um, who is probably the source of, of um, meanings. And it, it was very interesting to me the two key meanings that this can have here. On the one hand, the, this word can mean capstone or keystone. And if you, in building an arch... David will probably know this. You build this arch here, and there's this one stone that goes right at the top of the arch, and that's called the capstone or the keystone. And until that stone is put into place, that entire structure is shaky at best. And when you put that wedge shape in, in that arch there, then that is the glue that holds that entire arch, to, and it gives it its strength and its glue. And in that context, and that's probably the meaning that Paul has in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, because there he's talking about Christ being the head of the church and the glue that holds that church together. And in that sense, the capstone is that one stone that when you put that in there, then that arch is finally solid, and until then, it's shaky at best. In other words, he's saying the church without Christ is at best a club. Because Christ 
is not only the head of the church, he's the glue that holds it together. That's one meaning of this Greek word. The other meaning is what is the translation that's used here, and probably the meaning that Paul has is what you would think of the cornerstone or that anchor stone. I don't know how they build today, but when we would build in Africa, we would when we were going to lay a building down, we would go and very carefully build a cornerstone, and then very corner at the corner of two walls, and then we would tie a tight a tight string between the corners. And as we were laying the bricks, every brick would not be aligned to the brick next to it, but to the, that, that string which was tied to the, to the cornerstone. The idea is that that cornerstone becomes your reference mark. The person sitting next to you is not, your, is not your, your standard, is not your reference mark. Because if I try to align every brick to the brick next to it, you could easily get off. But if I bring every stone back to that reference mark, Okay, then all of the stones will by nature be in alignment. Okay, how often we we tend to love to compare ourselves to the brick next to me or my kids next to your kids. At least they're better than yours, so they must be okay, right? Okay, Uh, Paul, Peter is saying here, your kids aren't my reference mark and you are not my reference mark. The cornerstone is our reference mark and we align everything. And Peter's going to would say if there's disunity in the church, it's because there's some bricks out of alignment. They need an alignment job. And the alignment job is not to compare with one another, but to compare with the cornerstone. That's the other significance of this word. So on one hand, it's the glue that holds the structure together. On the other hand, it's the reference mark for the entire structure. And when every stone is aligned to the reference mark, they are by nature aligned to one another. And those are the two points that he tries to bring out here. <clears throat> What is the result of this stone? Okay. The result of this stone is twofold that Peter pulls out here. The first natural result is that we will become living stones ourselves. He says that in verse 5. You also, as living stones. What's interesting here, I I love this verse here. This is one of my favorite verses because it's so well put together. Um, Is that we become... Living stones. And notice what Peter does here. First of all, the tense is passive. It's not active. You are not doing it. Somebody else is doing this. It literally translates, allow yourselves to be built up. And notice what he says here. You also as living stones, plural, are being built up, passive, into a spiritual house, Singular. Very specifically what Peter is doing here. A bunch of bricks being built by somebody else into a single structure. Okay? The unity of believers is a big deal in the Bible. In fact, that was the focus of Jesus' high priestly prayers. The last prayer that we have recorded in the Gospel of John was the unity of believers. Um, And Peter focuses a lot on that book, particularly as they're getting ready to go through persecution. What are, these, what are these bricks supposed to be doing in this building? They are supposed to be acting as priests, he says, to offer. <clears throat> and, as, and what do priests do? They're a mediator. As mediators, we, as priests, we can come directly to the stone. We don't need some other mediator. We can waltz right in and, and have interact with this stone. Okay? And what, do, what else do priests do? 
They offer up, he says in verse 5, spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Now, I did a quick perusal through the New Testament to see what form do sacrifices come in. And this is not exhaustive by any means, but it's just a couple things that came out. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. So ourself is a living sacrifice. We read that as we're going through Psalms. That was like three weeks ago. We read Psalms 51. And David says, if it was burnt offerings and stuff that you wanted, I'd be, I could give that. But the sacrifices of the Lord are what? A contrite heart is what is acceptable to God. So yourself is a living sacrifice. If you would turn back with me, because it's right next to it, is, um, well, one book in between, but Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, the last, the writer of the Hebrews calls out some other things that are called sacrifices. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, we see that, that praise and thanksgiving are a sacrifice. Through them, then we continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. That's why worship is a big part of our church. We don't just sing songs because it's the thing you do. But singing praise to God is a spiritual sacrifice. Giving thanks to God is a spiritual sacrifice. And so it is a very integral part of what we do here, of offering up spiritual sacrifices. But look at verse 16, the very next one. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is well-pleasing. Serving one another is a sacrifice. I might add helping people move that we're good at is a spiritual sacrifice. Okay? All right? Being zealous for good deeds is a form of spiritual sacrifice. In the book of Romans, chapter 15, verses 15 and 16, We don't have time to turn there, but you will see that introducing others to Christ is a form of sacrifice, Paul says. Okay? In Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 through 4, the prayers of his saints are a spiritual sacrifice that is pleasing to God. Our prayers are a spiritual sacrifice. Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, that the gift that the church at Philippi had sent to him was a spiritual sacrifice and aroma well-pleasing to God. So spiritual sacrifices come in all shapes and forms. Okay, But basically, body life is a form of sacrifice. And so the result of the stone is that we should become living stones who are in the business of coming together in a spiritual house acting as priests, offering up spiritual sacrifices, which come in all forms. But there's one other form. Not only are we to be living stones, Peter doesn't actually use this term, but he takes a bunch of, in verses 9 and 10, he takes a bunch of terms and titles that were given to the nation of Israel, and he transfers them to the church. And in, and in the context, what he's really saying, that we become standing stones. You know what the significance of standing stones were in the Old Testament? Whenever God had done something great in the life of Israel, they crossed over to Jordan or whatever, they would leave a pile of rocks as a testimony to what God had done. And so as a reminder... It didn't work real well for the nation of Israel, unfortunately. But it, had, it, was a good, it was a good idea. Is that they would leave these standing stones as a marker and a testimony to what God has done. I think that's what Peter is saying here in verses 9 and 10. Where he's saying that God is making us into standing stones where I, our, my life becomes a testimony and a marker to what God has done in my life. Notice what he says. We are a chosen people. 
We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are God's own people for his own possession. And why? Get this real carefully. In verse 9, he says, when you see, ever see the word so that, that's the purpose of all this. So that you may proclaim, declare the excellencies of God. I see Peter saying he's calling a people out called his church so they would become standing stones. They would become a testimony and a marker to the greatness of God. So that as we become living stones, we ultimately end up becoming standing stones and are a testimony and a marker to God's greatness and what he's done in each one of our lives and what he's continuing to do. So the big question I ask myself, how does this happen? And we skipped over verse 4, and I think that's the significance here. Peter says in verse 4, and coming to him. And and don't jump over that phrase. You might think Peter is referring to the initial act as coming to Christ as Savior, but he's not. It's a totally different word than he uses in chapter 1 where he talks about them coming to Christ and having new life. This term here, and I won't try to pronounce this Greek word either, okay, but it's a compound verb, and it implies an ongoing, personal, habitual habit. It signifies... In in the book of Hebrews, this term is translated draw near. In the book of Hebrews, the exact same word is translated draw near. Let's look at that real quickly. If you turn with me to the book of Hebrews, you'll see this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. We know these verses well. It says, let us therefore draw near. Exact same word that Peter's using with confidence to the throne of grace. Chapter 7, verse 25. He says, therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near. Present tense, not past tense, present tense. Same word. Um, Chapter 10, verse 1. Um, Basically, in verse 1, he's saying that the law can't do what what, what does happen to those who regularly draw near. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament can't accomplish what what makes perfect those who draw near. Same word. Uh, Verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. Same word. We see that regularly throughout Hebrews. What Peter is talking about, this is a a habit. Drawing near, coming to him, is a way of life. In other words, a very deep, intimate relationship with Jesus has developed. That's how you become a living stone, which ultimately will end up becoming a standing stone. As I regularly and habitually come to him. I love in in John chapter 10, and we'll end here, Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd. And twice in that passage, he says the, good, the sheep follow him. Why do they follow him? In both cases, because they know his voice. How do they know his voice? They've heard it a bunch of times. They've heard it a bunch of times. And they recognize his voice. My dog didn't listen to me until he heard my voice a bunch of times. Now he does listen. Okay? And I'm not saying that. but the, Okay? Because he knows my voice. Okay. That's the same thing. With our relationship with Christ. As I regularly and habitually come to him, I hear his voice. And that's what ultimately draws me to him. And Peter says, when I regularly and habitually come to him, who is the living stone, you also will become living stones who will end up becoming standing stones as a testimony, as a marker to his greatness. And that should be the desire of every believer, to ultimately become a living stone in a single building, Acting as priests, offering up spiritual sacrifice, end up becoming a standing stone, a marker 
to God's greatness. Thank you. In a straight line. Reference to the marker, right? No. (laughs) 